Well, good morning, church family. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Damien Newdorf, and I'm a fourth-year graduate of Nippon Bible College as of this last April. My wife, Emily, and I are also members here, and we have two young girls, Molly, who is two, and Sophia, who is a little over three months. I am excited to be here today preaching from the passage that we just read a little bit from. And before we get started, I just have a few initial thoughts. When we read this psalm, I'm sure you found that it is pretty easy to see Jesus in it, even from the little bit that we just read. And we're certainly going to talk about that a fair bit. But what I was curious before studying this passage, and maybe you are too, was, you know, what are the events that led up to David writing this passage? You know, this psalm was written over a thousand years before Jesus ever came, and yet it has so accurately portrayed the crucifixion of Christ. And when I started looking for an answer, I, I quickly discovered that there wasn't, re- wasn't really an answer. I couldn't find where or when exactly this psalm was written with a great amount of confidence. Uh, but maybe that's the point. Maybe it just doesn't matter what exactly David was going through. And I have two reasons why I think this is the case. Number one, you know, people have different tolerances for what they consider to be suffering. You know, Emily and I, for example, when Sophia has been crying for hours on end and I need a bit of a mental break, Emily assures me that it's only been 10 minutes. If we had the exact situation that David was going through, we would be tempted to overapply the passage for us today. We would try to measure our suffering against what David was going through. You know, if someone was suffering, we would try to encourage them, you know, you're not actually suffering because what you're going through is is not what it looked like or is as bad as what David went through as he wrote Psalm 22. So the point of the psalm is not wrapped up in the circumstances that caused caused David to write the psalm, but rather that he felt the way that he did. Number two, if we knew the situation that led to the psalm, it would tempt us to focus too much on all the minutia of the past rather than what it is pointing to, which is Christ. It'd be like looking through looking at a beautiful painting. Uh, through a microscope. You know, it can be helpful and it can be cool, but it would also, but we would also miss the bigger, more important picture. And I think that as we go through this psalm, uh, we will see this point more clearly. So as we begin this morning, I would like to start with a question, and one that I hope that will set the, the backdrop for this message. Have you ever felt forsaken by God or that he has abandoned you or that he was far from you? Have you ever gone through a situation and thought, why God, why me, why now? Two Aprils ago in 2022, everything was looking up. I was graduating from my third year of NBC. Our daughter Molly was a year and a bit old and I had got a summer job and we had some rather exciting news. 
there was going to be another little addition to the family. But on April 28th, Emily went in for the usual start of pregnancy checkup and ultrasound. And it was there that we discovered that there was no longer any heartbeat and we had lost the baby. Almost exactly a month later, on May 27th, I woke one morning with some unusual chest pain. And after going into the ER in Ipwin here, I was taken by ambulance to Saskatoon because the doctors thought that I had, a ha that I had had a massive heart attack. While in Saskatoon, it was found out that it wasn't a heart attack, but myoperiocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart and the sac around the heart, resulting in a mandatory two weeks off to give my heart a chance to rest and recoup. And after these major events in our lives, it would have been very easy for Emily and I to question God, to be angry with Him. Why, God, in your sovereignty, would you have allowed these events to happen? We are young, we are healthy, we are in good shape. How could this be happening to us? Why are you allowing these trials to come upon us? Maybe after a tough situation, you have asked those very same questions, or maybe you're asking them now. I share my own tough situations, not to get your pity, but in an attempt to help us get into the mindset that David was as he wrote Psalm 22. There is no question that David was in severe agony as he wrote. These first few lines in David's lament, first lament, cannot be more potent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This beginning phrase is highly intentional, and we will look at it more in depth later. But for now, David is pouring his heart out to God. He feels utterly abandoned by him. It's as if God has denounced him. But even in this apparent abandonment, you know, David knows that God is still his God. He would still rather cry out to the one who seems silent than to cry out to any other. But that doesn't stop David from still inquiring of the Lord. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Groaning is such an interesting word. And when I hear it, I think of someone who is kind of mumbling under their breath or who is complaining about a responsibility that they have. But this is not the biblical definition of the word groaning, and it is not the only time it is used in the scriptures. When groaning is used in the Bible, it is generally used by a person or a people who are in deep affliction. It is a strong choice of word, and one instance of it can be found in Exodus chapter 2, when the Israelites were still in slavery. They were constantly crying out to the Lord to rescue them, but he doesn't, at least not right away. Groaning gives us this idea of a constant crying out, and that they have no rest because they're constantly crying out and asking God for help. They have no rest because there is no deliverance. And people would often become physically weak from groaning. From Psalm 6 we read, 
I am, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. And this is exactly what we see David going through. He calls to the Lord by day, but is not able to find rest. And even though God doesn't seem to be listening to David, it doesn't stop him from reflecting on who God is, which is what we see in David's first praise. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David recognizes that even though God is silent, he is still holy and able to save. David looks back on all that God has done for his ancestors. All of Israel's fathers trusted in God, and when they trusted in God, they were delivered. One area where we see this is when the Israelites were in the wilderness. You know, they wanted food and water, and God provided for them. God showed himself to all the land by saving acts, by bringing the Israelites out of, out of slavery, out of Egypt. And all Israel praised God for the deliverance, while David, who, though, sh- though who shares the same faith as his father's, holds to a different experience. God does not seem to deliver him from his trouble. And while all Israel is praising God, David is alone, cut off from the miraculous acts of God that his ancestors had experienced. And with that, he starts his second lament in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David now returns to reflecting on his own troubles. And while God is being enthroned with the praises of Israel, David, in a sense, is being enthroned with scorn and mocking. He is rejected by people, looked down upon, treated as something less than human. He calls himself a worm, only to be trampled on underfoot. People mock his trust in the Lord and think that David is being hypocritical. Since he is suffering, then he must not truly believe in God that he proclaims, or maybe that God just doesn't love him, and that is why he is suffering. The people shook their heads at David in disgust as they walked by, They make faces at him and laugh at him. But once again, David turns his gaze from his present suffering and onto God's faithfulness and praises him. Verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Again, Despite God not answering David's groanings, he recognizes that God has been with him from the very beginning. God had always been faithful to David. When David would watch his father's flocks and a dangerous beast as an animal or a bear came, God was with David and David was able to get rid of the animal. 
When David went up against Goliath, God was there still and delivered David. And whenever David went into battle, again, God was there and delivered him. God has not only shown himself in Israel's past to be a faithful, trustworthy God, but also to David personally. But where is God now? How can God leave one of his children when they need his help and deliverance? David now gives us his third and final lament in verses 11 to 21a. Verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. David calls on God to not be far away because trouble is near and there is no one to help him. God is his only hope. Ezekiel 39 makes mention of these big, strong beasts from Bashan. And here in the psalm, they are no different. These bulls would have been big and powerful with great big horns that would easily be able to pierce David. David also mentions how wide they open their mouths at him, like lions. When a lion opens its mouth wide, it's because they're going to deliver a death blow to their prey. David uses this imagery of these strong bulls of Bashan and lions and the great danger that they pose to him to describe the aggression and threat of the armies that encompass him an army who is strong, powerful, and one who wants to eliminate him. And this thought is connected with something else that David had said. You know, compared to these animals, David is only a worm and not a man. David is no doubt feeling the intensity of the situation. What can he do against these armies? He is alone, you know, he has no one. Where is God? Where is his family? Where are his friends? Where is the rest of the nation of Israel? There is no one to rescue him. And it is in this scenario where these next few lines take shape. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. This beginning phrase, poured out like water, isn't used regularly in the scriptures in this sense. But in Lamentations 2.19, it gives us this idea of someone pouring out all their emotions, all their feelings, out onto the table. Nothing is left out or held back. And just, if I, and just as if I was to pour out my water bottle and there'd be nothing water left, so too has David exhausted himself, crying out to the Lord. You know, his, his constant groaning, his constant calling out to, the God, to God. David has nothing left to give. He has poured out like water. And David, likening his heart to wax and it being melted within his chest, is to show his deep and utter fear. The idea of one's heart melting is used a few times in Scripture with two occurrences in Ezekiel chapters 7 and 21. 
In these two chapters, the people are absolutely terrified of God's upcoming wrath and judgment, and so their hearts are melting with fear. And David uses these five phrases, you know, being poured out like water, bones are out of joint, heart is melted like wax, strength is being dried up, and his tongue sticks to his jaws to show how terrified and exhausted he is to the point where he can no longer function properly. His body fails him. His bones buckle under his weight. David can't even speak because his tongue is stuck in his mouth. His strength is all dried up, and he compares himself to a potsherd, a piece of pottery that has been broken off from the pot, just as he feels he has been broken off from Israel and from God. And this leads us nicely into the last part of verse 15. You lay me in the dust of death. David has accepted his fate. He isn't going to make it out of this one. David is preparing to die, and he holds the Lord personally responsible. For what can he do? He is surrounded by strong, powerful armies with lots of soldiers, and God seems to have abandoned him in his time of need. He is no longer able to defend himself with the shape that his body is in. And David looks back on those who encompass him. Only this time, instead of seeing lions and bulls, he sees a bunch of dogs. But even still, they prove to be more difficult. Verse 16, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Perhaps David is looking at his enemies through the lens with which he held when David was on his side. Even though things look bleak, David still knows and remembers that with God's help, these armies that were once strong in his sight would be as good as dogs. But that vision is short-lived. These dogs attacked David, biting at him, biting on his hands and on his feet. They tear the flesh off his back, all the while gloating over him in victory and staring at him. David's use of dogs here is to show exactly what kind of state he was in. David is so weak, so exhausted, and so defenseless that he can't even ward off the dogs. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This thought is connected to the last bit of verse 15, where David is getting ready to die. And here, his tormentors are also getting ready for him to die. Now they have taken his clothes and dividing, dividing them up amongst themselves, just as they would with plunder after they raided a city. David now cries out to the Lord one last time for deliverance. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. David once again has taken his eyes off his situation and has turned his gaze onto the only one who can help him. He pleads with the Lord to rescue him from his distress. But notice this, 
even as broken as David is physically and emotionally from all the mocking and scorn, not to mention how he has been seemingly forsaken by God, even when he has, feels like he has no hope, David still considers his life to be precious. He doesn't want to die. He still values his life. He's, he still fights and calls to the Lord to save him. And how far we have come in our world where we don't value life to this extent. You know, when life gets hard, we'd rather just give up instead of fighting and keep calling out to the Lord. And at the end of verse 21, there is a sudden shift in David's writing. He went from calling on God to save him to proclaiming what God has done. Verse 21, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. David declares that he has been delivered. Past tense. David is now going to praise God for what he has done, just as he did in verses 3 to 5 and 9 and 10. And in fact, he takes it one step further. He proclaims it to the nation. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. This is a really interesting phrase. The writer of of Hebrews quotes this exact phrase in chapter 2, except it is Jesus who will say this and not David. Hebrews 2, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them his brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. There was a time when Jesus would have been very ashamed to call us his brothers, for he is truly God, and we are a very sinful people. But now, after making purifications for sins, Jesus is no longer ashamed to call us his brothers, and he has come to save us and to tell us of his Father in heaven. And then after proclaiming the mighty work of God, To the bigger assembly, David invites them to join him in praise. Verse 23, All you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. But has heard when when he cried to him. And David, who was once completely alone, is going to proclaim to everyone, and then with everyone, the wonders of God. What was once David's groanings for help has now turned to his outcry of joy and praise to the one who saves. For God has not abandoned the afflicted. He has not hidden himself from him who cries, but he has heard and he has delivered. Notice here that we don't exactly know what happened. You know, we don't know how God worked to save David, but all we do know is that God took action and that he did save. And all those who mocked and scorned David are now being drowned out by the sound of praise and joy toward the saving Lord. David can now join in with his ancestors once again, giving praise and honor 
and glory to the Lord Most High. Verse 25, he continues, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. David recognizes that his praise ultimately comes from God, for God has delivered him from his suffering. People would often make vows under distress, such as giving free will offerings, and they would fulfill them once God has shown his, his loyalty. David is participating in a corporate gathering of worship and praise, the, and praise to the Lord. Verse 26 makes it clear that there is much feasting going on as well. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. David, as well as the congregation, are feasting and giving thanks. They are sharing with the less fortunate, which David was not long prior. And in doing so, not only are they giving a message, or not only are they strengthening the less fortunate's bodies physically with food, but is also a message to them of encouragement. The hardship that they are now in is only temporary. Better days are ahead. Keep pressing into the Lord. Keep asking and calling out to him for deliverance, just as David did and was delivered. In today's world, our promise of a better life comes only after we meet God face to face. And until then, we just might be in constant suffering. But we can trust in the Lord to keep his promises of that better future because he has kept his promises from the past. All nations shall worship him. Now here in verse 27, and for the rest of the chapter, David now shifts his gaze once again from the congregation that is presently around him and on to future and coming generations. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The picture here is not of a brief time of success, but it is an insurance that the time of suffering will lead to a time of greatly spreading the knowledge of God throughout the earth. And surely, since the time of Pentecost, we have seen the fulfillment of this promise. All around the world today, Jesus is known and worshiped. And even though suffering continues in the world, David proclaims all, or David proclaims that all the people across the entire globe, spanning through every generation, including the future ones to come, will come and worship the king because God has saved. Now it only makes sense to talk about application here after finishing the passage. However, it is always important to look at an Old Testament passage through the lens of the New Testament.
And with that in mind, when you read Psalm 22, it is nearly impossible to read it and to not think of Jesus and his crucifixion. While on the cross, Jesus quoted the very first line of the psalm because he knew that ultimately it was about him. Psalm 22 takes on a fuller meaning in light of Jesus. The pain and agony of David are fully realized in Christ. In Matthew 27, Jesus is flogged and beaten. And flogging was a terrible practice that the Romans had perfected. The Romans were, at the time, a very strong, powerful, and numerous army. And they would make these whips with seven strands on the end that they would then tie in pieces of bone or metal. They would then use these instruments to literally take the flesh off of someone's back, exposing their bones. After the flogging, they gave Jesus a crown of thorns with a robe and a scepter and bowed down to him, mocking him as king. They scorned him, slapped him, spit in his face. They pulled hair out of his beard. And some historical books will say that after all that beating that he took, he wasn't even recognizable. He looked as though he were less than human. They then led him away on the hill where he was to die. While on the way there, Jesus was unable to carry himself and the cross, and he stumbled. His bones were no longer able to support his weight and the weight of the cross. He needed help. Once at the hill, they pierced his hands and his feet as he nailed them to that tree. And while Jesus was there, the soldiers took his garments and cast lots for them, waiting for Jesus to die. And those that passed by wagged their heads at him, continuing to mock Jesus and make fun of him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, they say. And unlike David, who was weak, exhausted, and defenseless against the dogs. Jesus, who is still truly God, was meek and obedient to his Father. Jesus was thirsty, and he asked for something to drink. And it was then at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only this time, God truly had forsaken his son, for it was his desire to crush him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, another great messianic passage, tells us that that has been God's plan from the very beginning. Jesus gave one last cry before yielding up his spirit. Then to make sure he was dead, the soldiers pierced his side, and blood and water poured out. His heart was pierced, and along with the blood, the pericardium fluid, which has the appearance of water, came out, and it was finished. We see how Jesus' whole crucifixion is played out in Psalm 22. To think that Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, went through that for me and for you, that he went through all of that to save the very ones who were beating him and mocking him and crucifying him. There will never be a greater love than that, Romans 8, 5. 
But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But that is not where the story ends. For on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death and receiving the victory and all the praise and all the glory and all the joy from all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Jesus has done it. He has conquered death. He took upon himself the wrath of God for every sin that has ever been committed or that ever will be committed. It is finished. He has done it. And to this very day, long after David said, we are still telling people of the things that God has done. We are still serving and praising the Lord for what he has done for us. And we are still not done telling people because not everybody knows of the good news that is the gospel. Now there are a number of great application points from this passage. But I, wanna, but I wanna draw our attention to what I think is one of the major ones. So number one is prayer and reflection. The real and inescapable problems of our life in this fallen world should lead us to prayer. David, throughout all his suffering and pain, constantly came back to prayer, and then out of his prayer and reflection, on the promises of God came praise. You know, David reflected on God's, on all God's promises, both those in the past and those that he's trusted will be fulfilled in the future. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past will help us to praise him as we ought. Even through our suffering, we can praise him. We can continue to face with grace and faith the problems that come daily into our lives. And this is all fine and well, but when you're in the midst of great suffering, it is really hard to come to prayer. It is really hard to look at all the great and wonderful things that God has done. And so as a really practical uh, application point that you can do, uh, comes from what I think is Joshua 4. And I'll just give the, the cold notes. So after Israel had crossed over through the Jordan River on dry land, a man from each tribe was to get a stone from the middle of the river and bring it out and make it into a pile near the water's edge. And the purpose of those stones was to be a reminder of what God has done for Israel. When the younger generations would ask the older, you know, what is this pile of stones here for? The older generations would be able to tell them of all what God did for them. Now, Emily and I don't have a big pile of rocks in the backyard, but what we do have is a dedicated notebook to record all the things that we have seen God do in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So that whenever we want to, whether that be in the midst of suffering 
or maybe we just want to praise the Lord, we can look through that notebook and see all that God has done. And when our kids are older, we can show it to them and say, look how God has been faithful to us. And if our kids have kids, our grandkids also, and so on. And I would encourage you to maybe start a journal as well. And as we wrap up here today, in the midst of suffering, let's remember to pray and reflect on what God has done for us. And if you can't think of one single thing that God has done for you, you can always think of the price he paid on the cross for you. There is always at least one reason to praise him. He saved you from your sins. There is nothing as important as our salvation. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the great and wonderful acts that you have done through our lives. I'm sure if we think about it, all of us could spend hours sharing of your faithfulness and your trustworthiness. For those of us who haven't walked with you long, we thank you that that you have made a way, that you have finished, that that you have that is that it is finished. Thank you for your sacrifice, for coming down to earth to suffer for our sins, for making a bridge so that we can be in right relationship with the Father again. And as we go out here today, we pray that you would help us to see you as faithful and trustworthy and still in control, even if we can see that in our suffering. We thank you that you still love us, even when it's hard to see. We thank you for your faithfulness. Amen.